Let us read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 35. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance for me of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. And Christ is the word of God for the people of God, and thanks be to God indeed. I would love it if you would think back with me to two moments in your life. Think back with me to just two moments in your life. Okay, the first moment is the very best family meal you ever experienced. Just think back. If you need to, close your eyes and think back to the very best family meal you ever had. What did that family meal look like? Who was there? Where were you seated? What kind of food was served at this meal? Maybe it's a, a Norman Rockwell painting where you're all sitting around a big dining room table and there's a feast spread out and someone carves a big turkey or pulls some pork off the smoker and you have this big picturesque American family meal. Or maybe if you're like me, the best family meal you ever had wasn't around a Norman Rockwell table. It was more about the place that I was at. You see, for me, my very best memories of food seem to circle around my grandmother's house. And in her house, it was a hundred-year-old farmhouse, and uh, there's a circle table in the kitchen. It's the only table you could eat at. And that only sat about six people in this small kitchen. So with Thanksgiving or Christmas or birthday parties, holidays, we would 
gather in that house, and there'd be 30 of us or more. So only six could sit at the table, and the rest of us scattered throughout the house and outside the house. Maybe you're familiar with this. Some of the younger folks would go in the living room and sit at the TV tray and watch a football game. The older women would sit at that dining table in the kitchen and talk as they cooked. The older men would go out and, and crush some Milwaukee's best and smoke cigarettes in the driveway while they're waiting on dinner. But it wasn't about the food. It wasn't about the Milwaukee's best. It wasn't about any of that. For me, it was about how I felt when we ate at my grandmother's house. You see, I could just feel the love that she had for all of us and that we all had for her. Even when we didn't always love each other or even get along with each other, we had a lot of love for my grandmother and she had a lot of love for all of us. And that made everything okay. And so as I think back to the very best family meals, I think of that house and I don't even think about the food. Okay, so maybe you've thought about your very best family meal. Now we have to go down a darker path. Think about the worst family meal that you've ever experienced. Now, I'm sorry to go down this rabbit trail with you, but it's important for us to think about because today in our scripture, we're hearing about a very bad kind of meal. And so I wonder if you can think back to the, the worst family meal that you ever experienced. Maybe there was an argument Maybe all the food burned, and the turkey caught fire, the green bean casserole fell on the floor, and the dog ate it all up. For some of you, maybe that was the best family meal, because you ordered pizza or Chinese food, and it worked out great. <laughs> but for some of you, maybe that was a really bad experience. I'll tell you what mine was. Many years ago, I had just separated from my first wife, and I didn't have uh, my daughter at that time uh, for the holidays. And so I spent a Thanksgiving, my first Thanksgiving as a grown adult, all alone. And I just spent that Thanksgiving wandering. I did make a meal for myself that evening, but during the day I walked around this park. It was rainy and it was cold and I was soaking wet, but I was just depressed. And so I'd walk around this park miles and miles and miles with headphones in, getting soaked in the rain, freezing cold, and very, very lonely. And so even though I made a pretty good meal, because I'm a pretty good cook, it was the worst meal I ever had, because I had no one to share it with. I was all alone on that day. Maybe some of you have had that experience. Maybe some of you are single, and you've had holidays by yourself. Uh, maybe some of you have lost a, a loved one, and so the holidays don't feel quite the same. That's how it is for me with my grandmother. She kind of held our family together, and when she passed away, uh, gosh, over 10 years ago now, our family seemed to sort of disintegrate without her love kind of gluing us together. But today we learn of two kinds of tables, a, a holy table and an unholy table, a healthy table and an unhealthy table. The very earliest accounts that we have of Jesus in the early church come from really one person mostly, and that person is named Paul. Sometimes you might hear him referred to as the Apostle Paul. It's a big fancy title. Really what it means is that he was chosen by Jesus to deliver this message, kind of like the early disciples you may have heard of, like James or John or Peter. So Paul came a little bit later, but he saw Christ, and in that he felt called to bring the early church into the homes and into the public spaces of those who were not Jewish, 
people that we would call Gentiles. So Paul went around in the decades following Jesus' death and resurrection and planted new churches. Just like we're doing at Cayley Community right now, he planted new churches all over the Mediterranean. And what's interesting about this is he caught the fire, the, the passion to plant churches, actually, while he was persecuting Christians. This man was going around trying to jail people for worshiping Jesus and possibly trying to kill them. We hear in one story that he held the cloaks of people who were going to stone a follower of Jesus and kill him. So he looked on, probably joyfully, as they killed one of Jesus' followers named Stephen. So Paul was kind of a bad guy. He was interested in hurting Christians, but on a road, as he was on his way to go persecute some more Christians to arrest them or possibly kill them, he saw the risen Christ. And in that experience, he caught this passion for sharing this good news with lots of different people. He turned his life around, and, and he started reading the scriptures in the light of Christ. And this letter we have, this letter called 1 Corinthians, is one of the very earliest letters that we have from a Christian. It's a very, very early letter. And so it's one of the earliest accounts that we have of communion. In fact, you might notice that language sounded familiar in this letter because it's where we pull the liturgy for our communion in the United Methodist Church and many other denominations as well. This may have been written just 20 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's very early on in the first generation or two of Christians when Paul is writing this tradition down that seems to have gone on from the beginning when Jesus instituted it himself right before he was crucified. Now, this is the earliest account we have of communion. It might sound really strange in current church context because it's hard to tell. What was going on here? What were they doing eating meals and mixing them with communion? Because, you know, in our modern church service, what do you do? You go into a big building, you sit on a big long bench or in a row of chairs, you listen to music, maybe sing along, you get a big long message. And then at the end, you walk up and you take a little piece of bread and some juice, like what we have here, and that's communion, right? But the early church services looked nothing like this. They didn't have big buildings or big worship teams or big fancy messages. In the early church, they met in homes or small public spaces, or they even met in graveyards and secret places because they were being persecuted. And so they met, and when they met, they said, well, let's practice hospitality because that's what we do in the ancient world. And so they had a meal together. They'd go to someone's home and have a big feast. And as part of that feast, they would maybe read a letter from Paul or read something from the Hebrew Bible, or they would share stories about Jesus and they would have communion together and perhaps even do baptisms at that time. So it was a very different kind of feel, right? And this practice of what we call today dinner church, <laughs> which was just church in the early church, but this practice of dinner church went on for a few hundred years. Actually, it was quite successful in spreading Christianity, but there was a moment a few hundred years into Christianity where, as John Philip Newell says, Christianity got in bed with empire. And when that happened, empire was very uncomfortable with this kind of subversive way of meeting, and so the Roman Catholic Church actually would eventually ban dinner church. They wanted people to come to the building and do mass and worship in a different way. 
Now, if you feel like Paul is a little bit irritated in this letter, you would be right. In fact, in a lot of Paul's earliest letters, he's kind of cranky. He's kind of grumpy and he's kind of frustrated. Planting churches is messy, right? Especially the early church, because they were putting together groups of people that were very diverse. Jews and non-Jews, rich people and poor people, uh, people who were slaves and people who were slave owners. All different kinds of people coming together into this group. And so it was really messy and there was a lot of conflict and a lot of confusion. And it seems like when these people were meeting, they were having some kind of potluck and people would bring their food and everybody would eat their own food. Or sometimes the wealthier folks, the privileged folks, would share their food with one another, but they would leave the poor out. They would leave those out who didn't bring their own food. And so there was this kind of class division or this clash going on in these meetings, and Paul was frustrated with this messiness. And then there were even those who were feasting and also getting wasted on the wine, which wasn't super helpful for a religious service. Now, you may have noticed that recently in Christianity, we've started moving back toward this again to what we call dinner church. And that's what we're doing at Cayley Community in part. We're not only a dinner church, but we do have dinner church as part of who we are, where we have a meal together. So we have to ask ourselves the question when we read this letter today, is, is the Apostle Paul saying it's not okay to have dinner church, that we shouldn't have meals together when we have worship together because it creates too many problems? Is it Okay to have dinner church. Sometimes it's helpful to me when I'm studying the Bible to ask myself a simple question, which is, how does this problem manifest itself today? Right? Because this particular problem doesn't seem to be as big of an issue to us in the 21st century, right? I mean, all the church potlucks I've gone to, I see a lot of sharing of the food. I don't really see anybody bringing their own casserole and hoarding it for themselves and their family. I don't see folks saying, oh, you're poor, you're not allowed to eat at our meal. Uh, thankfully, I haven't seen that. Maybe you have. But in general, I see our potlucks are very generous in today's Christian world. We invite anybody in. In fact, we're hopeful that those who are struggling with food insecurity do come to our meals and, and share with us. And so it doesn't seem like this particular problem Paul is speaking to is a problem for us in the 21st century. So how does this problem manifest itself today? What is the 21st century version of hoarding our food and creating class divisions and dividing the body of Christ, dividing the local church? Now, what Paul is really criticizing here is not really about food at all. He's not banning dinner church. He's not saying don't eat a meal together. What Paul is really criticizing is this thing called privilege. Now, maybe he wouldn't have this term in his time, but this is the term we have today that makes sense for us. Privilege. What is privilege? Well, privilege is having an advantage in life on the basis of your birth or your ethnicity or your class or your education and so on and so on. You know, in our day and age, many folk who look like me reject the idea of privilege. If you're white, straight, cisgender, European-American, you know, a lot of us are uncomfortable with the idea that we might have privilege. I remember an old rancher congregant of mine years ago from a previous church appointment. He and I were talking about this. He'd been watching some kind of cable news and had heard about this concept of white privilege, and it made him really uncomfortable, and he was frustrated. He said, you know, I earned all 
of what I have. I work really hard for what I have, and it's offensive to me to to say I only have this stuff because I'm a, a white straight guy, right? It was very frustrating for him. And, you know, he's right. He did work hard for what he had. I don't know if you know what a rancher's life is like, but you're up before the sun. In the winter, you're breaking ice off of buckets so that your cattle can drink water. In the summer, in the 112-degree weather, you're out harvesting hay or wheat, just sweating to death, constantly fixing fence and fixing tractors and everything that could break down as you're doing this off-road work. You're chasing off coyotes during calving season. Uh, you're doing calving in the dead of winter when it's freezing cold. I mean, there's all kinds of hard work related to ranching. And so this rancher friend of mine was right. He did work hard and he did earn much of what he had. But the idea of privilege, it doesn't negate your hard work. It doesn't take that away. But it is an acknowledgement that there's something outside of yourself that has helped you get to where you are. There's something about who you are. Some people might call it luck. <laughs> Some people will call it a blessing. And you might call it privilege. So here's some examples of privilege, just to kind of help you understand what I'm talking about and kind of how we might take Paul's words from the first century and apply them in the 21st century. Here, here are a few examples. So when visiting a church, so imagine you, you visited a new church in your life. You, you had to leave one or you moved, something happened, and you're at a new church. When visiting a new church, were you uh, worried that people were going to reject you because of your sexual orientation? Have you ever visited your church and worried that you were going to be bullied or not accepted or kind of scared off because of your sexual orientation? And the truth is that if you're heterosexual like me, you've never worried about that. It's not even a thought in your mind. You go into church and you just know, I'm going to be accepted for who I am. But if you're not heterosexual, that's something you worry about from the second you get out of your car in the parking lot, from before you've even gotten to the parking lot. You wonder, will I be accepted or not? So you can see, for straight folks like me, that's privilege. I don't have to worry about that. Now, there's another example. Uh, recently on Facebook, there's a, a Mustang Happenings page, right? I live in the Mustang School District here in Oklahoma, and so I follow that page. And time after time, I mean, rarely does a week go by where somebody doesn't just trash cash saver. If you don't know, Cash Saver is like a low-budget grocery store in Mustang, right? And every week on this Facebook page, somebody is just trashing that grocery store, saying, when can we tear this down and build a, a big fancy Crest or a Sprouts or a Whole Foods? Why do we have to have this nasty old grocery store? Oh, that is privilege, my friends. That is privilege. If you go into the grocery store and you don't really worry about whether a dozen eggs are $8 or $5, which is crazy, by the way, because when I had chickens and tried to sell eggs, they were $0.64 cents a dozen. But now, after all the things that have happened with COVID and inflation, the cheapest dozen eggs I can find are 5 bucks. But if you go into the grocery store and you're not worried about that 5 bucks or 8 bucks, that's privilege, my friends. That is privilege. Because for many people... Even $5 is too much to pay for a dozen eggs, and they skip the eggs all together. So when I hear people complain about Cash Saver, I think about how much my family is able to budget better by going there. And it bothers me. 
But that's an example of privilege. I'll give you one last example of privilege because most often we talk about it in our current context around issues of race, right? So I wonder if you ever worried about what would happen to your child if they got pulled over by the police? Have you ever worried about it? Like, let's say your kiddo's in high school and they were speeding and they got pulled over for speeding. Have you ever worried about the police maybe physically hurting them? or arresting them when they really didn't do anything wrong other than maybe deserve a speeding ticket. Or worse, ever worried about the police actually killing your child. If you haven't worried about that, then my friends, you have privilege in that area. You know, I didn't really understand this until my wife and I adopted our son. Our son is African-American and Hispanic. He's black and brown. He's this beautiful mix of a person. And he also has Down syndrome. And so it hit me after the the George Floyd murder and all these young African-American teens being killed by some police uh, that my son was really at great risk. Because of his Down syndrome, he really wouldn't understand what police were wanting from him. Now he won't be driving, but he could be walking down the sidewalk or minding his own business at the park. And because he was removed from his uh, home of his biological parents by police. He's kind of afraid of police. So I could envision my son running away from the police. And let's be honest, guys, if he was a white kid, they would chase him. But because he's a black kid, they might shoot him. I mean, that's just the culture we live in, whether you like it or not, whether it makes you comfortable or not. We swim in the waters of racism, and it's just a reality. It's America's original sin. And if you don't worry about racism, then you have privilege. And I didn't worry about racism that much until we adopted our son. And now it's really become a great concern of mine in life. Now, all of this is to say, if you don't worry about things like these, then you have privilege. And all of us have privilege in some places and not in other places. But Paul wants us to consider this when we gather and worship together, when we live our lives together, when we share meals or sit at football games or shop in the grocery store, he wants to remind us of something. He says in another letter, there are no rich or poor, there are no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian. There are only those in Christ. Everyone is included. And then... He turns to the story. The story. The story that levels the playing field. The story that invites everyone to leave their privilege at the door and commune together as one people. He says, on the night. On the night. And then the story goes. Jesus was betrayed. But before that, They had supper. They had a meal together, which is why early Christians gathered and had a meal together. They gathered and they had a meal, and Jesus took bread and gave thanks for it and told this crowd of people, these disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, it says, Paul says, after the supper, so they had a meal. After the supper, he took the cup just like this cup right here. 
He gave thanks for it. He passed it around the table. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This whole part of Paul's letter is about one thing and one thing only. It's about Jesus. And he had seen that the early church had taken their eyes off the ball and had started quarreling over issues of food and drink and everything else that you could imagine. And he wants them to get their eye focused back where it's supposed to be, on Jesus the Christ. And so Paul says, check your heart. Take this communion with humility and a deep meditative remembrance of the one who died for you and died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. Take the bread and take the cup and be transformed by grace, by the grace that comes from communing with the Christ, the grace that comes from communing with the one who made you, the one who saved you, and the one who raised you. Communing with God in God's own self. That's the beauty of the United Methodist Church. You know, one reason we practice open communion is so that everyone knows they're invited. Unlike many denominations out there, we invite anyone who wants to come to the table to come freely. Many think that communion is just about Christians remembering Jesus' death, but it's also a, a transformative means of grace meant to change our hearts and, and draw us closer to God. And not only that, but it is also a, a grace that draws people to God who may not know Christ at all. As Paul says, when we do communion together, we actually proclaim the gospel. He says we proclaim the death of Christ, the death of Christ for our sin, the death of Christ that allowed him to conquer death. And in so doing, we shower grace on those who haven't believed yet. We invite them into this mystery with us. Communion draws people into the way. Communion leads people into salvation. And communion grows people into the image of Christ's love. And so we ask ourselves the question, what kind of table shall we set for our guests? Let us host a table that creates the very best memories. Let us host a table like that table we thought of at the beginning the very best table, the very best meal, the very best memory. Let it be a holy table. Let it be a healthy table. And let us share generously of all we have, not just our food, but our time, our friendship, and our love. As we prepare a table that is simply a preview of things to come, a small taste of the eternal banquet where Christ is the host and we all feast and we all have our fill to the glory of God. Amen and amen.